And, you know, right after this chapter, he's going to make his way out of the upper room, through the streets of Jerusalem, out through the gate, along the book Kidron, you know, and up to the uh, um, uh, Garden of Gethsemane, where he'll pray. You know, and all along the way, he'll, he'll uh, teach his disciples. But when you look at this chapter, it's full of promises, it's full of teaching, trying to prepare the disciples for that dark hour that is to come. And, and it is amazing to look at because it is full of promises, chock full of promises. In fact, many saints, when they've been going through trials, tribulations, the difficulties, opposition that haven't begun in this world, they turn to this chapter for solace. They turn to this chapter for comfort that happened to be there. And last time we were together, we looked at the last promise that happens to be again in chapter number 14, and it happens to be recorded in verse number 27. And it says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give, I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And let me just say this, that peace is one of the main themes of this chapter, isn't it? You know, even though he doesn't mention it again over and over and over again, it's one of the main things because he starts off this chapter and he tells them again just exactly what he tells them right here. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You know, and he talks about how he is going away for a particular reason, that he might prepare a place that where they are, that where he is, they, may, they might be also. And when you realize that great truth that nothing is in jeopardy, what does it create in us? It creates into us peace. You know, when he tells us that we're going to do greater works than he has done, even though he's absent from us, that we're going to do greater works than what he has done through the making and maturing of disciples for the glory of him. We realize, again, and it brings comfort that there's reason, there's purpose in this life. When he tells us that he will not leave us as orphans, but he will send the Holy Spirit of God, what that does is comfort. It brings a peace that happens to begin in each one of our lives. So when you look at peace, it happens to begin one of the major uh, components that happen to begin right here. And we know what peace is, right? We know uh, when, when they talk about peace in between nations, there's the end of hostilities, there's some sort of agreement, maybe even to work together. And we understand that. We understand what there is peace in relationships. Again, there's the end of that hostilities, there's reconciliation, there's closeness that happens to be again in those relationships. But when he names peace in these chapters, he's talking specifically about this, the peace with God. And it's based upon the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we're accepted in the beloved. All of our sins, again, are forgiven. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, oh, that, that nothing will ever separate us from this great God. That this great God is for us and not against us, right? There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And we're brought into this peaceful relationship with his deity, with God the Father, with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also realize when we look at those truths that there's not only peace with God, but there's the peace of God. You know, where one is objective, one is subjective. You know, there's that sense of tranquility. There's that sense of peace. We, we know what it feels like. That sense, again, that there's somebody in control of all of the universe, even when things go wrong, that happens again in our life. And peace with God, understanding what it means to be at peace with God, always has that subjective element to it, doesn't it? That we have the peace of God. Now, here's the thing about peace. We realize that it's applied by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God as we understand these truths. But we realize it's really uh, fickle in nature, isn't it? You know, that we really have to work at being at peace with God or realizing that we are at peace with God. You know, it fluctuates that happens to be in our life because of the circumstances that happen to be in our life and because we have three enemies, right? We realize that the three enemies to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are what? The world, the flesh, 
and the devil. And we realize that. We realize that we have a great adversary that is alive and well in the world that happens to be around us. And his great goal, you know, whether he manipulates situations, whether he somehow, again, inspires certain people to do things, things against us, his great goal is for us to curse the Lord Jesus Christ, for us to lose our confidence, our trust in this great God that happens to be around. So when you look at Satan, you know, a lot of times we, we don't talk about Satan. You, you know, and when, when we look at it, we many times fall off into two errors. And one is, again, really to deny his existence and de deny, again, that he has any, any influence that happens to be in our life. You know, the modern caricature of Satan happens to be this man in red spandex, you know, you know with the pointy ears and the, and the pitchfork. And what, well, what we do when we give those kind of character, caricatures is just say he's a figment of everyone's imagination, of everything that's wrong in the world that happens to be around us, but he's not real. But when scripture talks about Satan, it talks about a real spiritual personality. In fact, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse number uh, 11, he gives us a command, doesn't he? He says, put on the whole armor of God. And he describes the armor of God through this passage of scripture. But he tells us, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Right? The schemes of the devil. And, and then he goes on and describes it. In, ver, in uh, verse number 12, he says, For, right, this is why you need the armor of God. This is why you need to do this battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I mean, isn't that interesting? You know, because most of our concentration, most of our effort is against fighting battles against flesh and blood. Other people that happen to be around us. And he says, no, that's not the battleground. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Satan, again, in his whole spiritual realm, his whole spiritual minions are absolutely real. You know, and there, there is an influence that they have that happens to be again in the world that happens to be around us. And let me tell you, if we only understood that, you know, it would be incredible, again, beyond a shadow of a doubt, how we would have a defeatist attitude. You know, how, how we would think beyond a shadow of a doubt, Satan, because he's so strong, because he's so, um, uh, such a force that happens to begin in the world, that it is, sometimes we can have these little victories, but in the end, we will fail. And this is the second mistake that happens to, be, happens to be among the people of God many times. They give him too much power. And let me tell you, if he's the ultimate power in the universe again today, what peace could we ever have in Jesus Christ? What peace would it make, again, what difference would it make to say that I have the peace of Christ when he's going to crush us in the end, when he's going to take away our faith? And I think, again, a lot of times as we look at our lives, we don't really understand what spiritual warfare is and how in conjunction, again, the peace of God interacts with that. And I hope, again, we'll, we'll, we'll see that from the text tonight. I hope, again, we'll see a way that we interact with these spiritual forces, how we fight these spiritual forces in heavenly places, how we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want us to look at two things. And one is, one way that we have this real rest in Jesus Christ, even though we're in the spiritual battle, is to realize that Jesus triumphed over Satan. And you can see that in verse number 30 of our text that happens to be going right here. Because look at what it says again right here. It says, it says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. 
You know, and one of the greatest problems, one of the greatest weaknesses that we have in and of ourselves in following the Lord Jesus Christ is many times we tell ourselves lies. Isn't it true? You, you, you know, how, how many times have you told yourself this lie? You know, here you are and you're in this battle and you're in this suffering and you're in these trials that happen to be in your life and you say something like this to yourself. I will always be in the suffering. Things will never change that happen to begin in my life. You know, things will always be this awful that happen to begin in my life. You know, and then that leads to other lives, doesn't it? Like, like this one. I don't deserve what I am going through. Right? Even though we know what the gospel says we, we uh, d deserve. You know, I, I don't deserve this. And we, and we start to doubt the goodness of God. We start to doubt if God's all good, then he can't be involved in my life. He can't be involved in all of these struggles that happen to begin in our life. And let me just say this. We are absolute culpable for the lies that we tell ourselves. We're absolute responsible for the message that we are giving our souls. But if you ever asked yourself this question, where did lies originate? Where did they come from? You know, and the answer that happens to be in the word of God is very specific. You know, when Jesus Christ is confronting the Jews, again, who are denying his Godhead, you, you, you know, throwing all sorts of accusations that happen, to happen against him, he condemns them. In John chapter 8 and verse number 44, and listen to what he says. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Now, who is Satan? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So who's Satan? He's the father of lies. You, you, you want to know the origin of all false belief systems? You want to know the origin, again, of all the false messages we tell ourselves? We have a great enemy that happens to be in of our soul, a great adversary. You know, and if we're ever going to triumph over him, then we have to realize this this truth, that Jesus Christ has triumphed over our great adversary, and how that works to bring us so much peace in our lives in the here and now. So what I want us to do is really walk through verse, verse number 30 and see what Jesus is saying, and hopefully we'll gain some direction, hopefully we'll gain some comfort that happens to begin in our life, but look at what it says and really concentrate on these words, you know, and see the message here, because Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And then he says, he has no claim on me. And when he says, I will no longer talk uh, uh, much with you, it's basically this, the cross looms large, doesn't it? The cross is coming. This time of teaching, this time of intimate instruction, this time of even encouragement and these great promises is going to come to an end. Now, it's very easy. So, no, I will no longer talk much with, with you. Why? Because this person is coming, the ruler of this world. That's why. For, right? Reason. It's very easy to come to this conclusion. Then he must be sovereign. You know, he must be in control of this situation. And let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Satan is not Jesus Christ's equal. You know, he's not, again, the yin or yang uh, to God. You know, this is what you have to realize. There is only one sovereign. And, here, and here's what you have to realize about Satan. Satan cannot act outside of God's permission, outside of God's authority. He can't act. You, you know, you, you know when, when Peter bragged, you know, although everyone denies you, I'm not going to deny you. Three times tonight you're going to deny me. 
And over in Luke chapter 22, in verse number 33, Jesus says this to, to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat. Now, look at that word demand there. What do you think it means? And it means this. It is the word requested. Now, think about it. Who did Satan request that he might sift Peter? Who was it? Let me, let me give you a hint. It begins with a capital G. God. Right? Right? And, and, and here Jesus prays for him that his faith might not fail. And in the end, he's restored. And Peter has to learn so many valuable lessons. Otherwise, God has his purposes. Satan has his purposes. But God has his. And it's to strengthen, again, Peter. And it's also because Jesus Christ, get this, has to suffer all alone. He has to suffer, again, that full brunt of the wrath of God all alone if he's going to be a sacrifice for sin. And God has his purposes. And so when it says the ruler of this world, what it's talking about, again, is this present evil world system. You know, even the philosophies that we talked about this morning. You know, Satan's over that realm. You know, but he does say right here, you know, in this verse, he says the ruler of this world is coming. You know, and what he means by that is all of these events are to tra transpire. And, and it's incredible, isn't it? Because when you look at the cross, you look at all the events that happen to be in the cross, they're all ordained by God, but they are brought to pass by this, by Satan, right? He inspires the betrayer. Here is Judas. You know, he's already over to the uh, temple guards. He's already over with the religious leaders, ready to lead them to the Garden of Gethsemane to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we realize even, even the Roman soldiers are bitter and hard individuals. They're tough individuals, calloused in their sin. So they don't care to smack this guy no matter what he's guilty of or not guilty of. You know, they're inspired by Satan. When you look at the religious leaders, they're inspired by Satan in their hatred towards the Messiah, the anointed one of God. When, when, you, when you look at Pilate, Pilate Pilate's inspired of, of uh, Satan because he cares more about his position than he cares about justice. When you look at the crowds that come by, and here's Jesus on anguish on the cross, and all of a sudden they're mocking at him, come down, you can save others, you can't save yourself. And here's the temptation. If he comes down off that cross, then he doesn't suffer the full brunt of the wrath of God, and he can save no one. And there's this onslaught of Satan over and over and over and over again. And this is an amazing thing. Where Adam and Eve fail in the garden, when Jesus Christ comes out of the garden, he triumphs over Satan. You know, and that's what's meant right here at the end of the verse when he says, he has no claim on me. Now think about it. Because when you look at that phrase, there's only one person in all of human history which that's true of. And that's Jesus Christ. It's not true of me. It's not true of you. You know, when you look at Jesus, there is no chinks in his armor or his character, is there? It's absolutely impeccable. He's absolutely perfect. You know, and you see that all the way through his life. In fact, you'll see it that this very night. You know, they'll arrest Jesus and they'll say, you know, now what, what do we condemn him? Let's get these false witnesses and let's condemn him. Let's, let's inspire him. Remember where lies come from. And they can't think of anything against Jesus. They can't think of any words that he ever spoke that were wrong. They can't think of any actions, anything in his life, to bring some accusation against him. And why? Because his life is absolutely impeccable. You know, Satan could never go to God the Father and make some accusation against Jesus Christ. Right? 
And when you look at Satan, Satan has no claim on Jesus Christ. Now think of that. Because it, what's the context? The context is this. I'm going to give you my peace. You know, I'm go- yeah, I'm going away, but I am going to leave my peace. Now think about it. How is Satan having no claim on Jesus Christ? How does it ever give us peace? Living in this life, living it with all of these accusations, because Satan can make many accusations against my life. Satan can make many accusations against your life. There's chinks in your character, in your armor. There's chinks in my character and in my armor. And you don't have to look very far. So what difference does it make? And here's the difference that it makes. is because I am found not in myself, but I'm found in my representative. And my perfect representative is none other than Jesus Christ. He lived that absolutely impeccable life. He lived that life and he died that substitutionary death. So much so that, get this, if, if Satan has no claim on Jesus Christ, he has no claim on the believer. You know, this is what's even meant over in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same thing, right? He took flesh. He took blood. He took that, that, that um, human nature on. And it says that, that th- this is the reason that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I mean, what comes after this life? Judgment. How do you escape judgment? Well, you escape judgment by having more life. But guess what? I know the hourglass is going by. Death is coming. But guess what? Somebody came and took the sting out of death. And why? Because the sting of death was the law. And praise be to God, someone came and fulfilled that law. Somebody came and died in my place. You know, so much so that in Romans chapter 8, Paul says these words, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Right? What can Satan bring against you? How can Satan condemn you, condemn me? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who, who, to condemn, who is condemned? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here's, here's the whole point. Satan has no claim on me because I am justified and forevermore in Jesus Christ. You know, and think of it, because what message are you telling yourself? You know, I, I talk to believers so often, and it's basically this, God is so mad at me. God is so angry. God doesn't want anything to do with me. And you know what? Why? Because I messed up again. God doesn't want anything to do with me because I messed up again. And and you know where that is? There's the father of lies. And we're telling and we're believing and we're culpable for it. And you know what the gospel says? The gospel says, yeah, you're a mess up. Doesn't deny that. Yeah, you've messed up again. But guess what? My acceptance is not based upon my performance, but the performance of another. Jesus Christ. And I'm accepted before him. And that's where that peace comes in. And let me tell you, the more that we recognize our acceptance before this holy God, the more we recognize this peace that happens to be again of God, it really does have a sanctifying effect in our lives. In other words, it changes us, it molds us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about it. 
you know, if we take all of that in, we realize that Jesus, we can have peace because in, spiritual, in the spiritual battle because of what Jesus Christ has done. You know, he's overcome Satan. Satan has no claim that happens to be again on his life. But here's the question. In, or, or here's the statement. In peace, we have to engage in spiritual warfare. We've got to be active, right? And it almost seems like a contradiction because we're talking about warfare. And, but there's peace that happens to be in there when we engage the way that God wants us to engage. So look at verse number 31 of our text. It says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now here's a great question, and it's answered again in, in Christian, uh, various different uh, Christian churches and Christian contexts in different ways. And it's basically this. How do I engage in spiritual warfare? How, how do I fight the battle? And let me just say this, all of life is a battle, isn't it? All of it's a battle. You know, when you look, that marital tiff is spiritual warfare. When you look again about that rebellious child, you know, that's just doing these things, doing these things, that's spiritual warfare. When you look again at the mockery, you might suffer at work. That is spiritual warfare. When you look at the problems that you have with extended family members, that is spiritual warfare. All of life is spiritual warfare. And here's the question again. How do I engage in that? How do I fight that? How do I battle that? Because it's amazing to look at this gospel because Satan is always behind the scenes. He's always in the shadow. In fact, he's mentioned several times throughout this gospel, but we don't see him blatantly here, blatantly there, blatantly there. He's always in the shadows. You know, and it's amazing, again, when you look at the New Testament and the New Testament commands that happen to the beginning of the believers, the way that we are told not to fight is never to do this, never to engage Satan directly, never to cast him out, never to bind him. Never to somehow, again, control him or try to overwhelm him or whatever it happens to be. But what it is, again, is through simple faith in Christ. Simple faith, again, in our great God. That's what we're called to do. And that's what they're called to do all the way through this. You know, Satan's looming, he's coming. And through chapter number 14, this is the first time he has mentioned Satan, right? Trust in these promises. Trust in these provisions that I am giving you. Keep your mind, keep your heart on me. And when you look at that, spiritual warfare, when we talk about spiritual warfare for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a lot more normal than we would ever expect. Isn't it? I mean, think of it. We've got three enemies. Remember we mentioned these at the first, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is what people many times do. When they have difficulties, when they have problems, when they have struggles in their life, they say, which category does it fit in? Are these worldly problems? Are these, again, things that happen to begin outside? In other words, not inside of me, but outside. Again, they're coming at me. Do I need to fight these things? You know, is this a fleshly problem? In other words, if, is it some sort of sinful desire that happens to begin in me, you know, that I need to repent of and I need to trust Jesus Christ in? And here's the third one. Or is this a spirit problem? Is somehow, again, Satan sitting on my shoulder, or one of his minions sitting on my shoulders, whispering things that happen to begin in my ear, and do I just need to somehow get rid of him that happens to be again right here? Because here it is. I'm really not that bad of a person. I really wouldn't think about that lady who's the opposite sex. I really wouldn't think, again, of that anger and that hatred against that other person because I'm really not that bad of a person. Right? So this has to be a spirit battle. 
And most of the time when you come to grievous sins that haven't begun in our life, that's the conclusion that people come in. But they don't realize, again, that these three great enemies, they almost work like a, like a um, rope, right? A three-cord rope. They're all there. The world inspired by the ruler of this world, Satan himself, works to tempt our hearts. In all temptations, in all manner of evil that happens to begin around us. And here's my whole point. Spiritual warfare is a, is a battle for the heart. And it is a human dilemma. It's not a spirit dilemma. It's always asking this question, right? right, right here's this onslaught just coming against you. Will you serve and trust Christ? Or are you going to serve and trust yourself? It's always a human dilemma. And we, as the people of God, as we, again, as the chosen instruments again of God, are always responsible for the decisions that we make. Certainly Satan, certainly the world that happens to begin around us can influence us. But we're the ones who make the choice. And therefore, again, it's a human dilemma. You know, and that's what Scripture says. You, you know, there's only three passages that happen to be in the Word of God that talk about spiritual warfare. Let me say that again because... I, some of you are looking at me uh, with cross eyes. There's only three passages. So when you think about spiritual warfare, it's not difficult. And one of them, again, happens to be put on the whole armor of God. Right? 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 It doesn't say fight Satan directly. It says put on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the ideal, and all these things. Right? Right? It tells us to arm ourselves. Here it is, in faith in God. And you know why? Because the way that we fight spiritual warfare, the way that we fight the minions that happen to be around us, the way we fight our own foolish hearts is this way, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Right? It's turning from something and apprehending and trusting somebody else. And you can see this because the other two passages of Scripture, one happens to be again, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse, uh, verse, uh, chapter number 5, and verse number 8. And listen to what it says. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? This is why your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he's not talking about taking your life here. He's talking about this, taking your faith. He prowls around like a roaring lion, what? To destroy your trust in this great God that happens to be above. Now, how do we know it's a metaphor? Because of what comes next. Because of what he tells us, right? Here it is. Listen to what it says. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, right? These are common categories that we go through, common categories of temptations or trials that happen to be in our life. But he tells us to do so, two things. Think of it. Here's a temptation. Here, here it is right here. It's luring me around. I resist that. I repent of that. And here it is. I'm firm in my faith. I trust Jesus Christ. How do you fight spiritual warfare? It's a, it isn't rocket science. The word of God again tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt how we fight spiritual warfare, here it is, is by repentance. Realizing my, the problem's not out here. The problem is my own foolish, sinful heart that wants what it wants. You know, everything else is just tempting me in that direction. I repent. I cleave to Jesus Christ. You also find that over in James. In James chapter 4, beginning of verse number um, uh, 7. Think of the terms of repentance and faith. And see how, how you can hear them in uh, verses 7 and 8. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. 
and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Do you see right there? It's right there in the text, isn't it? Cleanse your hearts, right? Purify your minds, right? The devil is coming after you. Resist him. But it also tells us to draw near to God, right? Right? Draw near to him. Submit ourselves, therefore, to God, right? And, and this is the thing that, that, that you have to realize that happened to begin right here. It's never telling us to bind him or have some sort of magical incantant, incantation which has more to do with witchcraft, which has more to do with sorcery than it has with, with the word of God. You know, if I have sinned, I have one person to blame. And guess who it is? Right? Right? Remember Flip Wilson? You remember Flip Wilson, right? 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 In the famous skit, the devil made me do it. Right? Right? We have one person to blame. And that happens to be again ourselves. We're culpable before this holy God that happens to be above. And, and we're told not to give the devil a foothold, leverage in our life. And how we do that is keeping our life and our heart stayed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about all that. Because I'm going to ask you a question now. Because it's always good to have examples, isn't it? Now here's the question. How did Jesus Christ fight spiritual warfare in his own life? How did he fight it? You know, how did he engage you know, is all of this that happens to be going around, that happens to be again around us. You know, there's no one that has been more assaulted by Satan throughout his life than the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a question. How did he fight? How did he engage in spiritual warfare? And right after he tells us, right, the ruler of this world is coming. He says this, but, here it is. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then they get up from the table, the upper room, and leave, and they say, rise, let us go from here. And the message here is Satan is coming. He's strong and vicious. And how does Jesus Christ engage? Well, let, me, let me tell you one way Jesus' warfare, spiritual warfare, is different than ours. And it's basically this. He never repents. And he never repents. Guess why? Because Satan has no claim upon him. There's never any sin in his life to repent of. But how he fights it is in this trust of his father's God. The trust, again, of his will, of his God that happens to be above. Don't, 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 don't we see this at the beginning of his ministry? At the beginning of his ministry, right? He's tempted three times in the wilderness. One, two, three. And what does he do every time? Right? right, Here's the temptation. Turn this bread. Man shall not live by bread alone. Every single time he turns to Scripture, he turns his mind, his heart on this one true God, and he trusts him. And so what does he do here? Right? Satan's coming. This is going to be brutal. You know, the way that they're going to treat me, the way all these things that are going to come at, at me. And this is what he says. But I do as the Father has commanded me. What does he do? He draws near to his Father. He leaves and goes to the garden and he prays and prays and prays and prays intensely. He keeps his eyes not on Satan but on the Father that happens to be above. And his will in this situation, in every situation, is to keep his heart and mind stayed on this great Father God. And to do his will. 
That's how he finds it. And here's the amazing thing as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because our connection with Christ, we do not have to listen to the siren songs of Satan and sin. We don't have to listen to it. God has given me freedom, freedom against Satan, freedom against sin, that I can actually live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I'm not bound to failure. I'm not bound to that way of life. You know, even Paul says in Romans chapter 6, beginning of verse number 16, he says, thanks be to God that you who were once were slaves to sin, right, right? We had no way but to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We were once slaves of Satan and sin. And now we're slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we have this ability, this freedom. You know, and think of it, because this is how it relates to peace. Because in the exercise of my freedom, I have peace. It is not a foregone conclusion that I will fall into specific sins over and over and over and over and over again. You know, if that was to it, then I would be anxious. I would be fearful. I would be depressed. I would be uh, frustrated in this life. I will never change. But because of my connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, I can change. I can follow God. I can keep my eyes, my heart fixated again upon this great God, his wonderful promises, his wonderful provisions for me. It tells me beyond a shadow of a doubt, when I do things and I do things wrong, I'm responsible for those things, but the good news is, is in it. I'm not a victim of all the things that happen to me again around me. These are not the things that control me. This God can control me. If I trust in him and I follow him, I have the freedom to follow him. So here's the challenge tonight. Live in that peace. Stop making excuses. Start to engage in true spiritual warfare. But, but in that battle, recognize two things. And the first thing is recognize where the battle is. Right? I said this again at the beginning. So often we're trying to engage in the wrong battle. So often, I am looking at somebody else as the great opponent that happens to be again in my life, and I'm fighting them and fighting them and fighting them, and I'm not fighting my own human heart that causes me to say, causes me to do the things that I ought not to do before this holy God that happens to be again above. And this is the thing. We have to fight the right battleground. And what battleground are you fighting tonight? When you look at your life, when you look at the adversity that happens to be in your life, when you look at the people who are opposing you, what battle are you fighting tonight? And the second thing to remember is, again, how we fight it. We fight it by trusting God and in his will, what he has told us, again, about who he is. And you know what comes out of that? Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the people, regardless of the situations, regardless of what we are going through, the byproduct of fighting here and recognizing this God and following him, the byproduct of that is the peace of Christ. Having our mind stayed upon him. So let's fortify our hearts and its battles that we're going through. Praise God, we have real hope in the battle because our great adversary had no hold on Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts for a moment of prayer. Father, what an encouraging passage of Scripture to recognize, Lord, even as the Lord Jesus Christ says, 
that Satan had no hold upon him, no claim on his life. There's no accusation that could ever be brought by the accuser of the brethren towards, towards you. And Lord, as we recognize that, we just revel that we have this holy and mighty standing in Jesus Christ forevermore. And we thank you for that. We just ask that you would be with us, Lord, that we would live in light of these truths. So often we get off track. So often, Lord, we're engaged in battles that we ought not to ever be engaged in. God, help us. Help us to become experts at fighting on the right battlefield. Lord, looking at our sinful hearts, looking, Lord, at times we're tempted to sin against you and even justify that sin. Help us to repent and help us to trust in you who gives us the power to obey. We thank you so much. Just be with us now as we go to our song service. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brother. Thing is when.